We've all heard them, pithy Christian sayings or truths that are not actually in the Bible. I remember when I was in Bible college, we we went to a a large church, a couple thousand people. The pastor told about a phone call he'd received that particular week where the caller asked, where does it say in the Bible that a woman ain't got no soul? It doesn't say that in the Bible. We've all heard them, haven't we? How about this one? God helps those who help themselves. Is that in the Bible? Is it even true? How about when God closes a door, he opens a window? (laughs) What does that even mean? Or how about, well, we're not supposed to judge. Oh, really? Or cleanliness is next to godliness. Works for the kids, doesn't it? Or hate the sin, love the sinner. That's throwing some of you, isn't it? I thought that wasn't. Is it? I want to talk to you this morning about this last one. We've all heard it. God will not give you more than you can handle. It's a well-intentioned piece of Christian wisdom. We share its profound encouragement at times of greatest suffering and, and loss, perhaps when we don't know what else to say. I mean, it sounds so spiritual, even though... It often doesn't match our experience. And and, and those we seek to encourage with such weighty insight, if they are at all spiritual, nod in ready agreement, put on a brave, knowing, and happy smile. But on the inside, they, and perhaps we, wonder. Because it sure seems like they're facing something beyond their personal resources and abilities. On the inside, they're crushed. And if truth were told beyond the expected mature response, they're crumbling. Do do they dare share their fears and, and, and doubts, their struggles? And if they do, will they condescendingly be seen as less than trusting, less than less than faithful, less than mature? Where do we get the saying? Is it biblical? Is it even true? Or as one asks, is it conventional Christian wisdom masquerading as biblical truth? I suppose it comes from Paul's encouragement to the Corinthians, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. But, but this is talking about temptation to sin, and with each temptation, God will provide a way to escape the temptation, to endure, to not give in to the sin. Yes, of course, but... Can this verse be applied to Christian suffering? Are are there times that you face challenges and and struggles and and trials where the only place that you can look is not inward but upward? When you, with the psalmist, find that the only response is to cry out, How long, O Lord? Perhaps the best we can say to people who are suffering is, I can't imagine the pain, the sorrow, the struggle, the loss. It, it, it must be more than you can bear. 
but I will seek to bear it with you. I will weep with you as you weep. I will pray when you find it difficult to do so. I will believe when your faith is weak. I will stand when you cannot do so. Cast your care, cast your burden on Christ for he cares for you. Maybe that pithy Christian wisdom doesn't fit every circumstance. We are studying the book of Hebrews. It's written by an anonymous pastoral heart to Jewish believers who were facing ongoing severe persecution and opposition. And it seems like that it may be getting worse. Maybe martyrdom was right around the corner. Interestingly, the author does not say, God will never give you more than you can handle. Nor does he promise a lessening of the trial. Buck up, this too will pass. Oh, that's another one, by the way. This too will pass. Maybe it won't. But rather, he says, the end, that which is promised, is worth it. Even if that end brings us through greater suffering, even death. Been in Hebrews 11 for some time, the great hall of faith. He's, he's seeking to encourage us. Look to the many examples of, of others who have lived by faith in the midst of adversity, even though they didn't receive everything that was promised. So we've spent several weeks looking at lots of, of Old Testament examples. Now the author apparently glances at his watch and like any good pastor realizes he's about out of time. And, and, and so he... I, I know that you think that sometimes I ought to do that. I never do. And he sums up his encouragements with a, qu- with a quick burst. It's, our t- it's in our text today. Read it with me. Hebrews 11, verses 32 to the end of the chapter say this. And what more shall I say? For, for time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and, and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions. This is sounding pretty good. Quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword from weakness, were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Hey, this is is good news. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Hallelujah. And others were tortured. not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourging, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and, and holes in the ground like animals. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. And all of a sudden that conventional Christian wisdom that we flippantly, glibly uh, um, shout about seems to falter. Whatever happened to God won't give you more than you can handle. Whatever happened to the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. Have you ever heard that one? 
Is it true? Tell that to the 13 men who were marched out to a beach in Egypt and beheaded because of their faith. Maybe, just maybe, there is a potential cost to the Christian faith. Found it interesting that Michael prayed at the beginning that some of us perhaps walked in with great joy in verses 32 to 35, and then others of us perhaps limped in. Maybe you gave your life in faith to Jesus Christ and you found that it's not that everything that was promised. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, the promises weren't quite right. Maybe it doesn't mean when you give your life to faith in Christ that everything's going to be wonderful and marvelous. Is it worth it? So what's the encouragement for us today? (laughs) I mean, if I were going to try and encourage you, would I write these words? What's the encouragement? The The last verse, God has provided something better for us. You see, we've seen the ultimate fulfillment of the promise. His name is Jesus Christ. And the best is yet to come. So hold on. Again, the author realizes that if he kept going, it would take some time to list all the examples of faith that might come to mind. So he summarizes quickly, but, but not perhaps in, in ways that you would expect. If he is trying to encourage people to persevere, if he's trying to encourage you to persevere, would he write these verses? When God closes a door, he opens a window. Isn't that what we want? follow this outline. We're going to see some unnamed examples. We're going to look at the triumphs of faith. faith. That's wonderful. But then he's got to go to the sufferings of faith. And we wish these verses weren't in the Bible, but they are. And then the approval of faith. He starts with a list of six names. Men of Old Testament renown who could be listed as examples of faith if, if only he had the time. They aren't listed in order. They appear to be in three pairs with each pair listed in reverse chronological order, Gideon and Barak. Barak actually comes before Gideon. Uh, Samson and Jephthah. Jephthah comes before Samson, David, and Samuel. Now, five of, uh, of the six are judges. And, and David, uh, of course, is the great king of Israel. Perhaps Samuel is listed last as a prophet to go with the other unnamed prophets at the end of, of this particular verse. Look briefly with me, briefly, at the exploits of these six. I will follow the author's example and assume that we are about out of time. Mentioning them again only briefly. Gideon was a judge, the one who delivered the Israelites from the Midianites. It's a great story in Judges 6 and 7. The angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon while he was secretly threshing wheat to keep it from from the oppressors. The the angel says to to Gideon, who is hiding, by the way, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. (laughs) Yeah, right. I can see Gideon glancing around. Long story short. God bolsters his courage. He gathers an army of 32,000 to effect a deliverance. God says, that's too many. So he whittles it to 10,000, still too many. By the time God is done, Gideon goes against a countless army with 300 soldiers armed with, with trumpets and clay pitchers and lamps. 
the Midianite army is thrown into confusion, and Gideon wins the battle. This, this took great faith, 300 men against a countless army, great faith. Next is Barak, who actually comes before Gideon in Judges 4 and 5. He goes to battle against King Jabin and, and, and Commander Sisera and the Canaanites with their 900 iron chariots. This is a formidable force. The, the odds seem stacked against them. But he goes uh, to, to battle with 10,000 Israelite soldiers, and we read that the Lord routed Sisera before them. All the enemy soldiers fell to the sword that day. Not one escaped. Absolutely amazing. It was a resounding victory accomplished, apparently, by faith. Now, the next two on the list are a bit odd to, to, to find in this particular list. We have to look hard to see their acts of faith that ended them up in this particular chapter. The first is Samson in chapters, in Judges 13 and following. I mean, what comes to mind when you think of Samson? I mean, besides womanizer. He, he was a Nazarite from birth, which means he didn't drink or actually partake of anything from, the, uh, from grapes. He didn't shave or cut his hair, and he didn't touch dead bodies. He was set apart to the Lord from his birth, and God used him to bring deliverance from those dreaded Philistines who I call the Klingons of the Old Testament. In fact, Samson, in an act of great faith, killed more Klingons in his death than all of those in his lifetime. Amazing faith. Then there's this guy, Jephthah. His story is found before Samson in Judges 11 and 12. While the son of a harlot, driven from his father's family, God used him to bring about yet another great deliverance for Israel, this time from the Ammonites. And we read that the Lord was with Jephthah and gave the enemy into his hand with a great, this is the word, great slaughter. Wow. That brings us to the next name as we move quickly through this list, and it's a good thing thing that we're moving quickly because the next one is David, and we could spend a long time on him. Uh, Surely he was a man of great faith who God used to finally, finally bring peace for Israel uh, from all of her um, enemies all around for the first time ever. He too fought the Philistines and and won great victories, but but of all the battles of, of greatest faith which perhaps come to mind when we think of David is what? David and, that's right, Goliath. Most of you know the story. The Israelites had gone to war once again with the Philistines as they drew up battle lines. This time the, Phil- the Philistine giant Goliath, over nine feet tall, stepped forward and challenged the Israelites to a one-on-one duel. Whoever wins, wins the war, and the loser becomes servant to the winner. The Israelites are, are quaking in their collective sandals. But one day, little shepherd boy David, himself not a soldier, visits his brothers at the front lines. He hears the taunts of this giant and says, what will be done for the one who defeats this uncircumcised Philistine? He's brought to Saul. And he says, I'll go fight the giant. You know the story. He runs out with five um, stones and his sling. The, the giant, Goliath, runs out in full battle array with sword and spear and javelin. Goliath, when he sees this little teenager, yells, am I a dog that you come against me with sticks? Uh, You come to me with sticks? Then he cursed David by his gods. He continued, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. And David responded, I love this. You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, and I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. That's a rather uh, big boast for a little boy. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Again, this is a, a boast of great faith. 
Unbelievable. They ran toward each other. David uses his sling to bury a stone in Goliath's uh, forehead, and the rest is the, is the history of Sunday school fame. But it is really much greater than Sunday school fame. This is a story of amazing faith. It brings us to Samuel. Samuel is considered the first of the prophets and the last of the judges. His entire life was characterized by faith. Even his birth was the result of his mother, Hannah's faith. From his childhood, God used him in great ways to bring about much-needed change and deliverance in the nation of Israel. It's an amazing list, is it not? But now look closely at that list for just a quick moment longer. Because all of them, at least five of them, demonstrated significant personal weakness, great lapses of faith. Maybe that's why they're listed. Consider, Gideon was hiding when God found him and, and, and called him. That whole fleece thing where we're getting put out of fleece to have God prove himself to him. He was testing God, make the fleece wet and the, and the ground dry, make the ground dry and the fleece wet. It was a lack of faith that Gideon demonstrated. Listen, it is not a good thing to put God to the test. When people say, I'm going to put out a fleece, tell them, don't do that. That's wrong. What about Barak? Through Deborah, God called Barak to go deliver the Israelites from the Canaanites. Barak's response, I won't go, Deborah, unless you go with me. This was before the time of women in combat. I know that's not PC, but this was a lack of faith. And Deborah says, fine, but God will give ultimate victory over Sisera, commander Sisera, to a woman. And we remember that great story. Sisera is fleeing, goes to the tent of a woman named Jael for, for rest and food. Please give me some water, he asks. And she says, oh, no problem. Here, lay down and let me tuck you in, get you some warm milk and cookies. Then when he falls fast asleep, she took a tent peg and a hammer and nailed his sorry head to the ground. It's a great story. And it's a lapse of faith on Barak's part. What about Samson? Most of us know about Samson's significant weakness with foreign women. Most of what he did in his deliverance of Israel against the Philistines were acts of petty jealousy as a result of his weakness with women. What do I say about Jephthah? What do I do with this particular story? Jephthah is about to go to war uh, with the Ammonites, and, and he makes this rather foolish vow. God, I will, if you will give me victory, I, he had already said that he would. If you will give me victory, I will sacrifice whatever first comes out of my house upon my return. God gave him victory, and what was the first thing out of his house to welcome him back? His only daughter. Now, there's some question as to whether Jephthah sacrificed killed his daughter or committed her to perpetual virginity. But the point is, his vow was altogether foolish. It lacked faith. He was actually trying to buy God off. Then there's David. Do I need to review his significant lapses? His adultery with Bathsheba and subsequent murder of her husband Uriah? There, there was also the time that he demanded that his commander Joab take a census uh, against Joab's advice that resulted in God's displeasure. One day, David is bored and wants to know how many people are in his kingdom. Go count them. Job says, are you nuts? He says, go count them. And it resulted in God's displeasure and the deaths of 70,000 Israelites. It was a lack of faith. He wanted to know how many people he had rather than trusting God. What about Samuel? There's not much to say about him other than that his own sons turned from following the Lord. You see, his failure was his family. 
why do I bring up all these failures? Because everyone points them out. And they all seem to be intentional in this particular list. A, a list of, of men of faith, yes, but all with rather significant challenges. And if we look closely enough, we would find failures with everyone listed in this chapter. Just like you and just like me. You see, the Bible never presents its heroes as perfect people. They were flawed people of faith, just like you, as perhaps you came limping in this morning, and just like me. And the encouragement to us is to remain people of faith despite our failures and lapses of faith. God accepts our faith, weak as it is. You see, you can never come to the point when you say, I have been too much of a failure. Exercise faith and allow God to strengthen you. Very quickly then, let's look at the triumphs of faith in verses 33 to 35. This is fun. There are several. Certainly some of these triumphs point to the men that we just listed, but others refer to well-known events beyond these men. Most point out the following list of nine things and before the tenth one in chapter, in verse 35, are in three groups of three. First, these men of faith conquered kingdoms. Um, certainly the judges did that as they led Israel against their oppressors. David and other godly kings did the same, accomplishing something the Israelites had never known, never known in their entire history, peace. Second, by faith they performed acts of righteousness. Third, told you we'd go fast, by faith they obtained promises, namely control, finally control of the promised land and peace in the land. Brings us to the next group of three. By faith, they shut the mouths of lions. David and Samson did that. But who typically comes to mind uh, when, when you think of shutting the mouths of lions? Of course, Daniel, who prayed to God in violation of the king's decree and was thrown into the lion's den. You know the story. The next morning, Daniel was found unharmed. God shut the mouths of the hungry lions. And we go, yay! That's exciting. That's what we get, Right? Next, by the faith, they quenched the power of fire. Having drawn attention to, to Daniel, we now think of Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refused to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's 90-foot image, his, the idol of himself that he had erected. They were brought before the king who gave them another chance, demanding that they bow to this divine image. You remember their response of faith, incredible faith in Daniel chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, who, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king, one way or the other. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. that's more than they can handle. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage, ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than normal and commanded these three Hebrews be thrown in. But when they were, not only were they not consumed, although the soldiers who threw them in were, the Son of God himself was seen walking with them in the fire. This, this is all going just like it's supposed to. Obey by faith and see great triumphs of faith. 
Next, we see they escaped the edge of the sword, right? The judges did. David did. Godly kings did. Great. This is wonderful. Life in the Christian life is going to be fantastic, leading us to the next three triumphs of faith. Hallelujah. This is great news. By faith, from weakness, they were made strong. Gideon was. Samson was. Jephthah was. David was, from a little shepherd boy to the great king of Israel, little Gideon hiding, and then letting the Israelites into great battle against the Midianites. By faith, they became mighty in war. Read the stories of the judges. And Shamgar with the ox goat of an ass and all of that. And godly kings who prevailed by battle. By faith they put foreign armies to flight. We saw that in these stories of the judges. This is unbelievable. This is really, really great news. Why? Verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. What is that talking about? Elijah and Elisha, of course, who brought back young boys from the dead and returned them to their mothers. From Elijah uh, to the poor widow of Zarephath and from Elisha to the, uh, to the wealthy Shumanite woman. This is all happening just like it's supposed to. Sign me up. I want the Christian life. I want the prosperity that American Christianity promises. Live victoriously by faith. But then we get to the next point, verses 35 to 38, and the author just had to throw these in. Because you see, all of a sudden, the tide turns. Others were tortured not accepting their release. We can promise this prosperity garbage and export it to nations around the world, but you should know that there were more Christian martyrs in the 20th century than the previous 19 centuries combined. The word tortured here is a specific word which speaks of being tied to a frame, tied to a rack, and beaten to death. Sign me up. The word there is used in a well-known event in the second century B.C. during the period of the Maccabees. The story appears in 2 Maccabees. Now, that's a book that was written between Matthew or between Malachi and Matthew, so it's not part of our Bibles. But it and other books of history were written during this time, which contain much Israelite history. Again, well-known stories. In this particular story, a 90-year-old, 90-year-old faithful Jewish scribe named Eliezer refused to eat pork as demanded by Antiochus Epiphanes and was tortured to death on the rack. 90 years old, beat to death. At that same time, 2 Maccabees 4 to 7, another well-known story, seven brothers were viciously tortured who refused to recant their faith they became known as the Maccabean martyrs. Why? 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 Why did they not recant? Very interesting. They could have done so and, and, and affected their release just to eat a dead gum pork chop. But instead, they looked for a better resurrection. Better than whose? The boys that were just mentioned in the first part of the verse. You see, those two young boys were raised and returned to their mothers only to die again. But these, the author says, will be raised to eternal life, never to die again. Do you see the encouragement? In the story, the seven brothers proclaimed one after the other, you can take our lives, 
but we will be raised because of our faith. So, is persecution and opposition worth it? Is it worth it today? Is it worth it to be marched out into a, to, to an Egyptian seashore and be beheaded because of your faith? If we believe the end for which we are destined, future eternal resurrection. Text goes on, others experience mockings and jeering, scourging, even chains and imprisonment. This was experienced by Jeremiah, Hananiah, Mac, uh, uh, Micaiah, the Maccabean martyrs, name after name. I could give you name after name, and it just becomes a blur. They were stoned, which refers to at least Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, who was stoned by the order of King Joash, a very wicked king, and mentioned by Jesus in the book of Luke. Second Chronicles 24. Tradition says Jeremiah met the same fate in Egypt after fleeing and denouncing the idolatrous practice of the Jews there. They stoned him. We, we read others were sawn in two. Think of that. What a way to go. That likely refers to the traditional story of Isaiah being sawn in half while having fled. He hid inside a cedar tree. They found him, left him in there, and cut the tree in half. They were tempted, likely referring to the temptation to deny their faith in God. We, we read earlier, some escaped the edge of the sword, but clearly not all. Others were put to death with a sword. You see, Elijah escaped Jezebel. Other prophets did not. While Jeremiah uh, earlier escaped the sword of Jehoiakim, his, his contemporary, a guy named Uriah, who also foretold the doom of Jerusalem and Judea uh, 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 and Judah, fled to Egypt like Jeremiah, but he was captured, returned to Jerusalem, and was put to death by Jehoiakim in the temple precincts, put to death at the edge of the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, referring to the clothing of the prophets who declared God's truth and paid for it. They were destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, wandering in deserts and mountain caves and holes in the ground. Sign me up. It refers to the large number of the faithful who sought refuge in remote places rather than compromise truth. Because you see, it costs something to be a Christian. Is it worth it? Well, it depends on your perspective. All of a sudden, the best place to be is in the center of God's will may not be true. Or is it? All of a sudden, God will not give you more than you can handle may not be true. Maybe He will. Maybe He has. All of these men, the author says, of all of these men, the world was not worthy. Put all of the world's heroes, all the mighty men, all their exploits, all their victories, all their accolades, all their treasures, all their trophies, all they live and pine for, put them against these people who gave it all up because of their faith in God, and these people of faith tipped the scale. The world is not worthy of them. Is it worth it? Brings us quickly to our last point, our conclusion. How do we face 
How do we face this kind of opposition, this kind of suffering, which, by the way, I have been warning us is increasing in our own country? Have you looked at the news lately? It is no longer popular to be a Christian. Is it worth it? Verses 39 and 40, all these having gained approval through their faith. We've heard that phrase before. That's what he said back in verse 2. They form bookends to to the chapter. All, all, All these gained approval through their actions, through their faith, by their actions, by their victories, in their sufferings. Approval from whom? From God. Because remember verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please him. Even though they did not receive the fullness of what was promised. Why did they not? Verse 40, incredibly, because God had promised something better. We've seen that word over and over. It's a favorite of this author. They had been promised a better city. They'd been promised a better country. But they would not receive the fullness of the promise until Christ finished his work, until we new covenant believers had come. This is incredible. You see, apart from Christ and the new covenant, apart from us, they would not be perfected. They would not be made mature. But listen to me, brothers and sisters. Now Christ has come, and they and we can be perfected by his work. And it may cost us. Is it worth it? So what do we do with this this morning? Very simply, I want to say we stop listening to the world's wisdom, even so-called Christian wisdom, and we speak the truth to ourselves. Biblical truth to ourselves. Quit listening to the murmurings and the clamorings of even Christian speakers who promise you something the Bible never does. You decide to sign up for Christianity, I want you to read the fine print. It's going to cost you. We believe, however, even though it costs us, because he intends something better for us. Indeed, the best has already come. His name is Jesus. And the best is yet to come when he comes back for us. Is it worth it? You bet it is.